the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In your life, have you ever had others tell you or suggest that you're worthless, of no value, ignorant, maybe someone who's suffered the hands of an abuser and you've been made to feel as if somehow you deserved it? Well, these negative identities simply don't reflect the way God sees us, especially through the eyes of Christ. And yet, it's Satan's goal to create these damaging deceptions in our own minds and, in the process, render us helpless and with the perception that we're worthless. We continue now in our series with special guest Don Scott Damon, looking at the Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that Bind You. And, Don, great to have you back on the program. Well, thank you so much. Wow, that opening just causes my heart to start pounding because it's so powerful. The um, Man, the distortion that Satan has on us as believers. So thank you for doing this. I'm excited about what people are going to hear today. This is, I think, very critical Bible study series for everyone, every individual who at one form, one stage or another in their life has been subjected mm-hmm. to this kind of abuse. It might be at the hands of a parent or a partner or a boss, whoever it is in your life that had enough influence and enough control over you to hammer away at these messages, ultimately leading to feelings of inferior, inferiority, of, of self-doubt, mm-hmm. of no worth. And then I guess at the end of the day, the, the big question as we sort of create this negative identity is, well, no wonder we behave badly. We've been taught to think badly. Absolutely. And we can never rise above the belief system that we have or the opinions or the feelings that we have about ourselves. And even if we do find some success for a season or a time, so often we end up sabotaging ourselves because, you know, the brain likes continuity. And if the brain believes that I'm bad and I don't deserve anything and I'm unworthy, just like you said, but we start doing some positive things, that's incongruent. So we end up sabotaging ourselves because we have to have harmony. And so without a true identity based on Scripture, who God says we are, um, so many of us are formed by our thoughts and what we believe about ourselves, and we perform um, as a result of that. And sadly, and this is, I think, an important point as we kind of establish this new Bible study series, sadly, many people, I think, erroneously are under the misperception 
that their identity is somehow wrapped up in their experiences, um, who they are in life, the things that we do, the things that have been done to us. I mean, if you ask the average individual, uh, tell me about you, they will typically respond with um, identity that's tied into their job, for example. So they get a sense of fulfillment in that arena, but they also get a sense of their value and worth in that. But I wonder, from a biblical perspective, is that really the proper way to view ourselves based on what we do, who we know, or what's happened to us? Yes, of course not. Our identity, and I struggled with this too, and I know so many people, how many of us haven't struggled with my identity equals what I do. My identity equals my labels or my titles. But the reality is, is we are the sum total of the cross of Jesus Christ that God created us in his image, that beautiful image was distorted and stolen by the enemy, by Satan, and that Jesus redeemed us and purchased it back. So now we have relationship back with God, but also we are to reclaim our rulership, our identity, who we are, 100% righteous, 100% of the time not based on what we do, not based on how much money we make. We know that not even based, again, on how we feel or what those thoughts tell us. We have millions of thoughts every day. And if we believe those thoughts, if we are driven by those thoughts, uh, they form our futures. But if they're not based on truth or reality, we're going to find ourselves in a place that says, oh, I'm doing this, I'm... I've created this mess, I'm unworthy, because we were listening to the wrong thing and not what God teaches about our identity. So we really have a a dichotomy at play here. On one hand, we acknowledge as believers that Christ's work on the cross affords us not only a a brand new position in life and, and certainly in death, and that, um, as, as God reminds us, our sins are, as uh, in his memory, from the east is, from the west in terms of mm-hmm. distance. Old mm-hmm. things pass away. We become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And yet somehow so many people seem to be stuck. They give mental assent to what Scripture says. And yet what is it? Is, is it a matter from your experience, Dawn, that people have been subjected to, to the negativity for so long that it's almost like a brainwashing, that it takes time to sort of unlearn those bad thought patterns and, and the way we view ourselves? Yes, yeah, sure. And I'm not a, um, a brain scientist here, but I've been learning a lot about this, and we know that there are pathways that our brain creates. And so thinking is a habit. Thinking can actually even be an addiction. We can be addicted to thinking negative thoughts. I know one girl that it was her shtick, if you will, to be to be negative, to be a kind of a satire and comic. But the reality was that she was living out a self-fulfilled prophecy based on the way she talked to herself and what she believed about herself. And so her brain automatically and very easily went to the negative. And God wants us to rebuild our minds and renew our minds, right? That sounds familiar. Renewing our mind and transforming our lives by taking our thoughts, making them captive to Christ, and putting in new data, new input, rewiring, breaking those old thought patterns and recreating new thought patterns. 
meditating on the truth. I am a child of God. I'm an heir to Jesus Christ. I'm a citizen of heaven. I am flawlessly designed. I am a masterpiece. I am whole. I am beautiful. I am well in Jesus' name. These are labels that God gives us freedom to say, that's who you are. Claim that identity. Don't say, I wish I could be different, or one day I hope to be different. No, I am different. I intend to live different. Get that mindset that I am going to live my life based on Scripture, not on experiences, thoughts, beliefs, but on what God's Word says. And and this change in how we view ourselves, how how we see our sense of self-worth, self-value, identity in Christ— this really is a process, isn't it? And, and I ask that question, Don, because so often, um, particularly with new believers that have gone through traumatic experiences, they read passages in Scripture, they hear what the preacher says from the pulpit, that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, behold, all things pass away, everything has become new. And they think on that for a moment and say, well, you know, I, I thought that way yesterday, but here I am today, and I still feel pretty miserable about myself, so therefore it must not work, or therefore what I was told all those years about my lack of value, my lack of worth, how horrible I was, must really be true. Is the failure there mm-hmm. our failure to recognize that we have been subjected to years of, what's the phrase, of stinking thinking? <laughs> And so it's going to take time that we have to, we've got to engage in a process of replacing the bad thought patterns with new thought patterns, and this takes time? Yeah, thank you for saying that. That's why I wanted it to be a 60-day challenge in the Bible study that we're doing right now, because we need to create a new habit. And science now tells us we know that the, the 21 days to make a habit, that's not actually accurate. It's really over a couple of months, so they, they say 66 days. Or For me, we chose 60 days. Every day, 60 days in a row, a routine, a habit of reading Scripture, replacing our old thoughts with the truth of God, taking away the negative, and, and, and not just trying to rid ourselves of old thoughts, but adding and putting in and replacing the words of Jesus, um, so that those thoughts begin to shape, form, and transform the way we start thinking, the what we start believing. That Word of God bubbles up within us. Now I've created a habit, and as you said, this process now that I've been undergoing, this cognitive restoration that my brain doesn't automatically go to the negative or the devalued thoughts or the distorted thoughts, but but now all of a sudden I'm getting interrupted. My pattern is getting interrupted. The Word of God is clear in my mind, and, and the supernatural takes over where the Holy Spirit starts to remind you what you just read and what you just meditated on. You're going to see that your identity begins to uh, become a reality to you as it isn't not based on feelings, but accepting the truth. I choose to believe what God says about me, regardless how I feel, regardless what somebody spoke over me, regardless what I speak over myself. 
God's word is truth, and that trumps everything. The new book released by Redemption Press called The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords That Bind You. Its author, our guest on our ongoing Bible study series here on KFAX, Don Scott Damon. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Don Scott Damon with us today. We're talking about the Freedom Challenge, 60 days to untie the cords that bind you. And as we continue with this um, multi-week Bible study series, Don, I want to come back to a point that you made just before the break, and that is that there's really two things at play here. There's the thought process that needs to be changed. We need to go out with the old and come in with the new and begin to see ourselves the way Christ sees us, read the Scripture, study, meditate, memorize, and begin changing our thought patterns. But there's another issue at play here, too, and that is that a lot of people tend to also get a sense of value based on how they feel. You know, if you feel good today, you have a positive attitude about life. And if tomorrow you wake up and you're feeling kind of down in the dumps, well, there we are. How do we go about addressing that that connection that we make, somehow thinking that how we feel is is rooted in our identity? How do we address that? I think, first of all, we have to make an acknowledgement and an awareness of the fact that our our feelings are not truth. They're, they are fallible. They're subject to change. We know that they're not going to be reliable. And so if I understand that and I recognize that, that's the first thing. I can learn to ask myself some questions. I say to myself, Craig, um, so many times I'll say, is that a thought will come to me? You know, we get... Millions of thoughts a day, as I said in the first segment. When a thought comes to me, I'll say, is that true, God? Is that what your word says? And I measure it by what, how does this line up with Scripture? And if it doesn't line up with Scripture, let's say I think, um, you know, I, I did something yesterday that was, I'm really, I really feel bad about. I feel stupid. I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? W- wait a minute. First of all, I begin to think about what I'm thinking about. Am I really stupid, or do I just feel embarrassed? So I can take that feeling to God, and I can say, God, I I feel embarrassed. Would you just lift this from me? Would you show me truth? But secondly, I have to remember that a feeling is is an event. It's not permanent. It's something that, in the moment, I feel that way, but uh, feelings must give way to truth. So I begin to tell my mind, just like Colossians tells us, and what Philippians says, whatever's true, set your mind on things above. You set your mind. You determine where it's going to go. You make that decision. I am not going to fellowship with this darkness. I'm not going to fellowship with this negative feeling. I'm not going to be a friend and have a conversation with this lie from Satan. I'm going to pull it down, and I'm going to replace it. And if I have to do that out loud, I'll say, God, thank you for your word. Thank you that I'm loved by you. Thank you that I'm righteous because of Jesus Christ. Thank you that today I'm the top and not the bottom. I'm the head. I'm not the tail. Thank you today that I'm loved by you and adored by you, and I'm your priceless treasure. Thank you, God, that I'm loved by you, and I'm amazing and priceless. And I just begin to tell myself, but it takes an intention. 
and that's why when we get started in this 60-day freedom challenge, we make an intention. Do you really want to be different? Do you really want to change? And let's set our intention to say we're going to do this thing. And part of it is we're going to be aware. You said stinking thinking. We're going to be aware and think about what we're thinking about. Wait a minute. What is that thought telling me? And it might be telling me that I did do something that violated my own code of ethics. So rather than ruminating over how bad I am, let me just get it right. Let me ask for forgiveness if I need to. Let me go back to a person and make it right if I need to. But let me not believe the message that I'm not valuable because I did something wrong. Let me rely on God's truth that I am forgiven, I am loved, I am adored, and move on. And Satan really uses this as an effective tool in his arsenal, doesn't he? And I, and I ask that question because we're reminded in Scripture that it is Satan who is the accuser of the brethren. And when we are walking around with feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, feelings of worthlessness, some people look at that and they almost adopt those feelings then as a lifestyle, as opposed to understanding what it means in the moment. And that our identity is not wrapped up in how we feel, good, bad, or indifferent. Our identity is wrapped up in who we are in Christ, not based on how we think of ourselves, but rather what he has done for us. Right. Excellent. And, and God has thoughts. You know, our, our self-esteem and how we, how we think about ourselves, how we feel about ourselves, is coming from um, virtually the subconscious collection that we have of feelings, opinions, and labels that we've carried from all kinds of sources, including ourselves, and the interpretations of things that have happened to us, like we talked about last time. But God has thoughts. He says, I know my thoughts that I have towards you. My thoughts are good and not evil. My thoughts are to give you hope and a beautiful future. So let's, let's believe God's thoughts. Let's say, God, let your, your intention, your thoughts be the thing that I think about and focus on. Satan also has thoughts. The Bible says we're not unaware of his schemes, or the Greek word there, thoughts. He wants us to bite that bait and believe that we're um, unworthy and all of those negative things. And he doesn't have to change his method. It works. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He knows he can send that little fiery dart into our brain, and we'll grab that, and, and, he'll, and he doesn't have to bother us for a whole month because we'll beat ourselves up. God, let your thoughts wash over me today. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and I receive that truth today. That's the warfare. That's the fight. That's the battle that every believer's in. But we've been promised the victory. Learning to modify our thinking and begin to release our sense of identity based on feelings and rather adopt our sense of identity based on who we are in Christ Jesus. This is a process, as we've said. This is sort of a um, layer upon layer, precept upon precept. For listeners that are joining us on this 60-day challenge journey, as we really sort of officially launch into week number one here, Dawn, um, what are some of the key components then in relationship to identity to kind of sum up and summarize uh, for listeners uh, the, the beginning of a new foundation, the beginning of a new viewpoint, the beginning of a new sense of identity here? Yes. So first thing to know is that you are who God says you are end of story, not who you say you are, not who the enemy says you are, not who people say you are, good or bad, you are who God says you are. Now, who does he say you are? 
He says you're his child. He says you're accepted. He says you are capable. He says you're holy. He says you're beautiful. He says you're forgiven. He says you're valuable. He says you're victorious. He says you're more than an overcomer. And how do we know that? Because the Word of God says it. So I accept the Word of God as being truth and as being the measurement in every thought that rises itself above that thought or that truth that God says, this is who I am. I have to cast it down and say, I do not receive that thought. I will not meditate on that thought. So this is calisthenics for the brain, (laughs) for the mind. And as we do it spiritually, we also change our brain physically, biologically, and we'll begin to experience the breakthrough and the joy and the freedom that comes. So believe this, make a choice. I am who God says I am. And this is really intentional, isn't it? I mean, Scripture talks about taking every thought captive. And so that that's not just sort of a, a, a casual one-off. This really has to be purposeful, intentional, deliberate. You talk about in the new book, Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords That Bind You, uh, about one woman who literally wrote it on the mirror <laughs> so that every day when she got up, she was confronted by the passages of Scripture that helped begin this process of taking every thought captive and beginning to see oneself the way God sees us. Yes, I love her testimony. I told her I was coaching this girl, and I just said, you need to write on your mirror and tell yourself every morning, good morning, you good-looking thing. And she just thought I was just crazy. But the reality was is that her negative self-talk was so powerful that unless she wrote it down and read it, she couldn't even physically say anything good about herself. And the testimony is that through that repetition of speaking truth, releasing those words, transforming her mind, she actually began to believe that she was beautiful and that God had created her. And this is part of the habitual thinking that we have. We have to renew our mind, and we have to post it in places that remind us, that speak to us, that um, our eye gate, our ear gate, our mind gets this new message in. We're seeing it, we're hearing it, we're believing it, we're meditating on it, and we're speaking it out loud. This is the process of stripping off, if you will, the old layers. Think about wallpaper and how you got to peel it away and peel it away and peel it away until you get down to the true foundation. And she was peeling layers and layers and years and years of negative self-talk and labels and curse words that she spoke and others spoke over herself. This is the truth that sets us free. And I just get so excited when I start to see the transformation in people and the joy that starts to come. And then the ability to dream and to risk and to think, I actually can do something with my life other than curl up and sit and watch it run by and me miss out on all the great things God has in store for me. Taking all thoughts captive and embracing our true identity 
in Christ. The Freedom Challenge, 60 Days to Untie the Cords that Bind You, the new book, by the way, published by Redemption Press. You can follow along. It's available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, Bay Area Christian Bookstores, or through Dawn's website at DawnScottDamon.com. Dawn, thanks so much for the time. We'll look forward to our visit next week. Awesome. Thank you. God bless you. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. For those who have loved ones currently in the hospital, who have perhaps lost a loved one, it raises many of the why God questions. Why does God allow things to happen like this? And when we're in these kinds of times, whether we're talking about the tragedy of what unfolded yesterday in Boston, to the loss of a child, to maybe just the day-to-day challenges that we face in life, oftentimes we we feel as if we're kind of groping about, and we're we're wondering in the middle of the darkness of our experience, how do we find God? Coincidentally, a new title of a book called called Finding God in the Dark, and it's co-written by my next guest, Ted Gluck. Ted, of course, has been on the program previously. We talked to him uh, some months ago regarding his best-selling book, Dallas and the Spitfire. Back again to join us today, and Ted, is always great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Boy, the timing of our conversation today in the wake of the tragedy of Boston yesterday, again, it just touches on so many levels emotionally and and spiritually. Kind of give me your overall sense, um, particularly in the spirit in which uh, you wrote this book along with Ronnie Martin. Um, We're in these moments, be it the tragedy of yesterday to simply maybe losing a job, losing a loved one. We grapple with this sense of where God, why God? Yeah, we really do. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. These are these are existential questions. You know, these are questions that that strike to the core of our existence, and um, they really strike to the core of how it is that we think about God. And um, you know, as as I prepared for the show tonight, I, I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I was I was talking it over and, and praying about it with my wife, and I was reminded of the verse in First Thessalonians that says. You know, as Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, and you know, but we still grieve. You know, and, and whether you're intimately involved in a situation like this, or or whether you're just kind of observing it from the outside, I mean, you're grieved. And I'm reminded of the the doctrine of total human depravity. You know, the idea that that we're all sinners in this world with sick hearts, and that there's no hope for us, and there's there's nothing good apart from Christ. And I think, you know, what what you take from this event. I mean, you watch the media and you hear things like, you know, we're going to do everything we can. And, you know, there's all kinds of kind of governmental slash military finagling going on. And, and on one hand, you, you root for that and you're, you're hopeful that something will be done. But, you know, as Christians, we know that um, apart from the cross and apart from Christ, you know, there's really, there's not a good answer. You know, there's not a great hopeful thing that, that Obama or anyone else can say to people to really make them feel better. So, you know, I think for us, maybe the takeaway is an opportunity to, to recognize the sin in our own hearts. And, you know, much of my book deals with that, you know, this idea that, you know, it wasn't until I really humbled myself and threw myself at the foot of the cross that I had any joy and any peace in this life. And I think we were reminded that we don't find our joy and peace in circumstances or situations. You know, it, it isn't God's job to, to make everything perfect for us. Um, uh, but he does find us. He does seek us out, and he does give us the opportunity to 
to humble ourselves and, and find joy and peace in Him. You know, what you say, I know, even with my listeners eavesdropping on this conversation right now, we, we, we resonate with what you say. We, we certainly readily give a mental assent to your observations. And yet oftentimes, isn't there that disconnect that we experience, meaning that we understand, for example, if we want to just kind of uh, coldly in a very calculated manner dissect what transpired yesterday, it is, you know, man's depravity, it is separation of God, from God by, by sin, it is our inclination to do wrong and evil and the influence of the enemy in our lives. We understand all of that, and we can certainly, in many ways, kind of pigeonhole or categorize the pain of yesterday into those categories. We give complete, total mental assent to those realities. And yet there's this disconnect where emotionally, though, we're still saying, but wait a minute, God. I mean, aren't you supposed to come in and kind of, you know, save the day? Uh, We look at this and say, well, you know, of all the people that died yesterday, uh, three all told, why did one of them have to be an eight-year-old boy? And suddenly now we're kind of emotionally uh, and spiritually wrestling with God over these things. Yeah, we are, you know, and I I fully agree. And I think, you know, for those of us who, who grew up Christian or grew up in evangelical homes like I did, I mean, I think I I spent a lot of years just intellectually assenting to things and not really feeling or experiencing them. And there's this this strange tension in the church where you know you're you're clinging to truth and you have biblical truth, but yet you you still want to experience things. You want to feel comforted. And you know, for me, uh, I think the Bible is full of of examples of people who you know cling to cling to Christ and cling to cling to God in the midst of really horrible things that are happening to them. And on one level, you, you, you don't really maybe find comfort in their stories, but I, I find comfort in the idea that there's a model for how we can cling to the Lord in those times, how we can cry out to the Lord, how, you know, King David, who, you know, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but, but was also this horrible sinner. You know, he was a, an adulterer and a murderer, and he has the audacity and the, and the courage, really, to ask God for a clean heart. And then he asked God to restore his joy. And this is, you know, when people are pursuing him and, and chasing after him to take his life, you know, he even he even clings to, to the Lord for joy in that. And, you know, as to how that comforts, you know, someone who's who's grappling with the reality of yesterday, I don't know, but I'm but I'm glad it's there. And I'm glad, you know, the Bible gives us a, a model for how we're to do that. And I've I've found, I mean, my experience has been um, that there's really been no earthly comfort outside of that. And, you know, sometimes we can't explain these things away. We can't, um, you know, God doesn't let us know immediately why it's happening. Um, but, but that feeling of joy and peace, even in the midst of, uh, of life's terrible storms, I mean, that's something that uh, experientially we can we can look to the Lord and just say thank you. There's yeah. one thing, though, that tends to kind of complicate this, and after a brief time out, I want to kind of dig deeper. We, we spoke of the, the mental ascent to what we understand to be true from God's perspective, from God's Word. Then there's kind of the emotional struggles that we go uh, go into, where we, we understand intellectually what's going on, and yet emotionally still there's that sense of disillusionment and fear and doubt and unbelief. The third aspect that kind of complicates this scenario is the big cover-up, and we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. Best-selling author Ted Kluck is with us today, a look at finding God in the dark. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. (laughs) 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our visit with best-selling author Ted Kluck. He, along with co-author Ronnie Martin, have written a new book called Finding God in the Dark. Now, we talked a bit about that sense of giving mental assent to what we know are the realities of what's going on in these kind of circumstances, Ted, and yet oftentimes um, being just overwhelmed by emotional senses of, of doubt and fear and disillusionment. But then there's kind of the other third item that I think tends to complicate this, and you talk about it in the book. It's something that we evangelicals in particular seem to be very adept at, and that is um, kind of faking our way through pain. But, you know, painting on the smile and, and getting past the greeter at the door at church on Sunday or, you know, uh, giving the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? When, in fact, we're really not. And I'm wondering if sometimes that sets up a barrier that really blocks us from the ability to deal with how we're feeling and kind of find the sort of uh, peace and relief that we seek. Yeah, I think it absolutely does, and I think, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I was absolutely guilty of that for so many years, you know. The issues were different for me in that, you know, our our hard times, our dark places, if you will, were infertility, um, a failed adoption, um, some vocation-related failures that I was experiencing, and instead of, you know, being humbled and clinging to the cross and those things, for a lot of years I just got more bitter, you know, more bitter, more cynical, um, but week after week, day after day, you know, Sunday after Sunday, I would go into church and, and, you know, I was, I was everybody's buddy and, and the back slapping lobby guy with a smile for everybody. But inside I was really dying, you know, and I was really struggling with, you know, how do I love a God who, uh, would put me through this quite frankly was, was my thought process. And, um, it was really tough, you know, and, and thankfully the, the same institution that was hard for me in that, the church. Um, it was tough to go to church, and it was tough to see everybody else, I thought, prospering, you know, while I was kind of circling the drain, I thought. But um, it was that same institution that ended up being, you know, such a help and such a comfort for me as the Holy Spirit uh, pursued me out of that. I guess the irony is that a lot of us are often going through this, whether it's the way in which a whole community suffers, such as in the wake of the Boston bombing, or individual families. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. As you point out in your case, it was an adoption that right on the cusp of, of everything coming together, um, your uh, your little Ukrainian daughter, who who was literally the the, the sister of, of one of your adopted boys, uh, mm-hmm. another couple stepped in and the law did what it did uh, thousands of miles away, and that whole adoption process fell apart. That created a great deal of pain in your life, and I guess maybe the issue oftentimes here is when we're going through pain or fear or doubt or disillusionment, uh, we want to keep up a happy face. You know, nobody typically posts on Facebook what a terrible day that they're having or what an awful meal that they had. They we all tend to kind of want to be uh, happy and, and, and sort of, you know, put on the dog, so to speak, and yet behind that mask oftentimes lurks an awful lot of pain. Yeah, that's so right, man. I, I think oftentimes we're our own best press agents. And, you know, from being in Christian media and Christian entertainment, as I am, you know, there there is this often kind of creepy, you know, motivation to self-promote. And um, I find I found myself doing a ton of that, you know, uh, again, on Facebook, my Facebook persona was, you know, I was this happy, successful guy with a great family and, um, you know, all kinds of success and all kinds of exciting things happening. But you know, for anybody who knew me then or, or anybody who was close to me then, you know, the opposite was really true. And, 
Um, it wasn't until, you know, I heard some convicting preaching. Um, it wasn't until I, you know, I went to some friends of mine in the church, uh, a pastor and an elder, and just said, look, I'm, I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really dying here. I'm really bitter, and uh, I need your help, you know. Um, thank God, you know, for me that the Holy Spirit pursued me in that way and, uh, and, and kind of led me to do that, because I think even though the circumstances really haven't changed, you know, this book isn't one of those stories where, you know, we pray a couple of times and then we get rich and have a bunch of kids and everything starts going right for us. You know, the, the circumstances are the same, essentially, um, but, but Christ has given me a lot of joy and a lot of peace in the midst of that. So I'm thankful. What's the big takeaway? Um, as both you and Ronnie have shared a lot of personal pain in this book, what are you hoping to be the big takeaway for readers and for our listeners tonight? Yeah, you know what? I think a couple of things. Number one, we can feel so alone in our churches um, when we do struggle and when we are in dark places. And uh, Ronnie and I hope that this book would kind of be the, the friend that we don't have in churches, you know, the, the person who's willing to be honest about their own struggles and their own sins and their own you know, dark places. So hopefully it'll be a comfort to people on that level. But um, I think the other takeaway really is just a, a simple presentation of the gospel. You know, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we acknowledge our sinful hearts and our brokenness, that He'll lift us up, you know, and He'll um, He'll redeem us and He'll give us peace and He'll give us, you know, the, the clean hearts and the, and the joy of our salvation that David talks about in Psalm 51. And, you know, I think in, in different ways and in different struggles, uh, Ronnie and I have both uh, experienced that, and we wanted to, you know, to write the book as a really an outpouring of thanks to uh, to a Lord who would who would do that for us. You know, a couple of really sinful, screwed up guys. We have a lot of observers right now who they themselves are asking questions, who do not currently have a relationship with the Lord, and I know it's easy sometimes to come up with pat answers. But from a sincere standpoint, as, as maybe people out there who are not believers are seeking answers and, and asking the why God questions as well, what, what do you tell these people in, in terms of how they can find God in the dark? I think keep asking and keep seeking, and, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will find you. You know, I, I think, you know, we serve a Lord who, who finds us and who pursues us and who loves us enough to, you know, to to. to come after us at times, and, you know, I think if, if people are asking questions, that's a great sign. You know, I don't think you, I don't think you get anywhere in this life without asking the hard questions, and, you know, again, you know, there's this, there's this weird tension in the church where you're just so, sometimes you feel like you're supposed to smile and show up, and um, everything will be great for you, but, you know, it really wasn't until Ronnie and I started, ask, started asking those hard questions that, um, that we got any peace. And um, so I would say keep asking. I would say, you know, search for truth. I mean, I think we're, we live in a culture where um, it's very cool and it's very sexy to, to be journeying and never arrive anywhere. Um, it's cool to be a seeker, but not a, a, a pursuer of truth. But I would say, you know, seek hard after truth in Scripture and, uh, and see how the Lord reveals himself to you. A look at Finding God in the Dark. Ted Kluck, along with Ronnie Martin, the authors of this new book. And the book, by the way, is recently published by... i got to get my cheaters on here. Boy, reaching that age, are you, Roberts? Bethany House Publishers. And you can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through Ted's website at tedkluck, K-L-U-C-K, dot com. And our thanks again to Ted Kluck for visiting with us in this segment of Lifeline. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.